0: Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. How are we? Good. Two people. Great. Welcome. Uh, what a game last night, huh? I knew that would get some applause. I was pumped. Um, but welcome to Fellowship Fayetteville. My name is David. If you haven't uh, met me or been here before, if you're new, if you're with us on live stream, welcome this morning. Uh, so glad that you're here. Hey, we're gonna do a couple things that I, I need to keep in front of you. So this this next week is Easter. We get to celebrate this next Sunday, uh, the resurrection of our Lord, and we got a couple things that we would invite you to uh, do as a family or just individually this next week. This next Friday from seven a.m. to five p.m. down in the Fayette Kids Theater, we'll have um, a room available for reflection, for communion. And I would encourage you to, to bring your family and do that. I remember being um, when I was younger, my dad would always take our whole family up here for like 15 minutes before work, and we would take communion together as a family. He would explain um, the weight of our sin and how that is why the Lord had to die, and then he would remind us that we get to celebrate that He didn't stay dead in three days. And so we did that as a family every year growing up. And Um, I remember that, vividly doing that. And so we have that available for you this this coming Friday, if that's something you'd like to do. And then on Sunday, we have two different Easter options for you. Uh, We have Easter in here in this room, and that'll be at 8, 9.30, and 11 o'clock. So we would love to see you for that. Please reserve your seats for that. And then we have an outdoor family service, and that's gonna be out in the back parking lot, um, back over there as you're leaving. Um, and that will be at 9.30 and 11. And the thing with that one is, if you wanna have a seat, you gotta bring one. So bring a chair, bring a fold-out chair, and bring that and join with us outside in a family service. Our family team's gonna own that one and it's gonna be a blast. And so if you got kids, bring them to that service. It'll be a great time. Well, like I said, we get to celebrate Easter next week. And so this week is gonna be a little different. This week's gonna be a little darker, a little heavier. We're gonna sit a little bit in the weight of our sin and, and try to help realize what the, the separation that we cause and the part of the story that we bring to the table, and that's our sin. So we're gonna have a verse come on the screen, and in a moment we're gonna read it together, but I want you to take a moment and just read it and think about what this verse is saying, and then we're gonna read this together and we'll sing together. So take a moment and soak this in. Would you stand with me? Let's read this. Let's read this together, out loud this morning to frame our time of worship. This is Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by By his wounds we are healed. So let's sing this together, the man of sorrows.
1: Man of sorrows. Silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned. Bowing to the father's will, he took a crown of thorn. Let's sing it together. Oh, that rugged. Oh that rugged cross is my salvation
0: We don't understand dead if we don't understand that we have sinned we have sinned and fallen short of glory of God and so we read this together to remind ourselves that we are all guilty of this each one of us individually are guilty of turning our own way and the Lord laid on him that sin so we we, we read this together then we celebrate it let's read it out loud together we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so we sing this, and we believe it in celebration. Let's sing it together, Now My Debt. Now my debt is
1: paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse is of sin has no hold on me whom the sun sets free Now
2: This morning, as we remember the work that you've begun, the work that you've done, the work that you're faithful to finish, God, allow us to feel the weight and to know that you are good. Allow us to see us how you see us. Open our hearts and our minds to hear your truth this morning.
3: No one walking by that hill outside Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago, no one walking by that hill and seeing three criminals on a cross would think, this is the decisive victory over sin and death. This is the enthronement of the true King of kings and Lord of lords. No one walking by that day would think this is the moment where the creator of the universe has made come to pass his plan of bringing blessing to the nations. No one would have thought that. In, in, instead, it would have been one more would-be leader, one more would, would-be upstart movement, one more Jewish Messiah figure that the Romans brutally executed. Another criminal hung on a cross. Yet again, Rome is in power. Caesar is on the throne. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. I guess this whole thing has failed. No one walking by that day the humiliation and the shame and the torture of the cross. A historian summarizes it really well. A theologian historian says this about the cross. He says, Crucifixion was one of the central ways in which authorities in the ancient world set out quite deliberately to show subject peoples who was in charge and to break the spirit of any resistance. Those who crucified people did so because it was the sharpest and nastiest way of asserting their own absolute power and guaranteeing their victim's absolute degradation. Nobody who had witnessed such a horror would be likely to regard such a death as noble. And almost certainly nobody walking by that day thought, that's noble. And that brings us to Holy Week. This week for us as as Jesus followers, if, if that's you in the room, where we take ourselves back to the Passion Week Of our Savior and our King. I'm I'm excited about the Razorbacks winning, all right? It's a good night last night. We went crazy, and that's good. But we are entering into Holy Week for us as followers of Jesus. It's a somber celebration this week. And today we're gonna take ourselves back to the cross. Next week, we're gonna party, all right? But today, we take ourselves back to the cross. And what's interesting, we've been studying the book of Joshua for, uh, if, you've, if you've not been around uh, the last several months, we've been studying this book of Joshua, an Old Testament historical narrative, and now we're just dropping ourselves into the cross story, kind of out of nowhere. It's, it's, it's Holy Week, of course. That's why we're doing it. And when we do this, oftentimes we can miss a large part of the narrative that's gone on before. Like the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus is not some isolated event in the biblical story. It comes with a huge list of baggage behind it, a huge narrative that's been developed behind it. Have you ever, I had this happen this, this past week, we went out with some friends and uh, I left the table, went to the bathroom, came back and somebody was telling a story and everybody was laughing. Have you ever had this experience where you enter into a conversation and Everybody's laughing and everybody's into it, and you sit down and you have no idea what they're talking about or what they're laughing about. I had this experience this last week, and I want advice from you. Somebody come tell me later what you do because I didn't know what to do in that moment. I don't know the story, I don't know what he's doing. I can tell the story is almost over. Everybody's laughing. Do you just sit and stare at them? You just look at them and just not laugh? That's kind of rude, but it's inauthentic to laugh because I don't know what he's talking about, so I kind of did like the fake laugh. I kind of looked at everybody else and, and smiled, but I didn't know. And then it'd be, do you ask, hey, can you, can you retell the story? I was in the bathroom. Can you just start the story over? It's a very awkward, uncomfortable position. And that is actually exactly what we do oftentimes when we drop into stories in the Bible. We don't get all of the context. I remember uh, when I saw, uh, I, I have no context for this series of movies. I know it's books too. I didn't read them or see them. But friends of mine took me to like the fifth one I guess when it came out like 15 years ago, whatever that was, and I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know who the characters were. I didn't know why they were doing certain things. I didn't know what was going on in the little magical world they were in. I didn't know what was going on, and I didn't therefore appreciate a lot of the detail and the nuance that the director and the writers had put into the movie, and that same thing is true oftentimes for us, and we're gonna see it. I wanna zero in as we look at the, look at the Luke account on this one verse, when we look at the gospel accounts, they're gonna give us these strange little notes like this. It was now about noon, Jesus is on the cross, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And when we don't get the surrounding narrative, we don't really follow the big story of what's gone on in the Bible, we sort of look at the cross and look at that scene without the context, and little notes like this are just odd. Okay, darkness came over, why record such a thing. The weather patterns of the day, thats an odd thing to put right in the middle of this crucifixion account. So what we want to do this morning, we're going to take like six minutes, and we want to we set ourselves in the bigger story of what the Scripture is doing with this theme. Just this one theme. There's a lot of themes we could develop here as we enter into Holy Week, but just this one theme of this darkness that comes around Jesus on the cross. And to do that we're going to do a flyby of the story of our Bible. So just hang with me. We do like 5 minutes we're going to look at the big picture of our Bible. Here's what the the Bible essentially does. It is telling us a story. It's a narrative that the Bible is giving us. And this story begins with the the creator of this universe. The Bible calls him Yahweh, who has created this universe for his glory and that he would dwell with humanity to then bless the rest of the world. He wants to work through humans to bless all the rest of the cosmos. It's a beautiful picture of what our purpose is in this world as human beings. And we're going to see some all sorts of interesting things in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But one that's fascinating to me is we we get two trees selected out of this garden in Genesis 2. And these trees represent a story that the rest of the Bible is going to tell. The story goes something like this. If you receive from me from the tree of life, receive the provision that I give to you, then you will experience the abundance of life. It's the tree of life. And you'll experience the abundance of it by receiving my provision. Or you can reach out to try and take the ability to define wisdom. The knowledge of good and evil is another way of saying wisdom. You can define wisdom and happiness and meaning. You can reach out and take it on your own terms. And when you do, it's going to bring a whole host of a mess and problems into your world. It's wisdom. Choose. Will you receive from me provision and experience life, or will you reach out and take? And the theme that's going to be developed by the Gospel writers of this darkness, we're going to see begin to weave together just three little chapters in. Three chapters in, in the garden, we get this very bizarre character. Out of nowhere, this whisper, this dark power that we're, we're told is a serpent, but we're, the, 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 the biblical authors are gonna give us, it's certainly more than a serpent, all right? We're gonna get more as the story unfolds, but that's all we got for now a serpent begins to whisper into humans' ears. And that whisper sounds something like this. God can't be trusted. He's holding out on you. Take, define wisdom. Take that power for yourself. Don't receive from him. Take it. This dark whisper, this infection, evil, out of nowhere, It whispers in a human's ear. and Look at verse six. Will they receive the provision of Yahweh and say, you are all we need? No, look at verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she reached out, she took it, she gave it to her idiot husband who was there. And he ate it too, okay? Here's the picture I want you to get you. I want you to get this in your mind. There's a dark power in this world and it's influencing humans and humans yield to it. We say, I want. You got the picture? They're married together. This spiritual rebellion and our human fleshly rebellion wedded together. You see the picture? And it's going to bring about this infection that has plagued the human condition ever since. Like a stone being thrown into a pond and the ripples going out. We're going to see the ripple effects of this moment go out in the next few chapters of our Bible. Just one chapter over, look at how things turn out. Yahweh, the creator covenant God of Israel, comes to one of Adam and Eve's descendants and says, hey, Cain, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you don't, now the dark, this dark power, it's given a, it's given a, a name. And it's also likened to an animal. It's crouching at the door, sin. It's crouching at the door, and its desire is to master you. This dark power, and look at Cain's response. Look at verse eight. He says, hey, Abel, let's go out of the field, and while out there, he kills him. The, wedded, the weddedness of this dark power and humans' fleshly rebellion together. It's gonna get so bad, there's two chapters later in Genesis chapter six, we get this fun little note. The, The Lord saw how great the wickedness, think of ripple effects on a pond, the wickedness of the human race had become on all the earth, in that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Happy Sunday, everybody. Glad you're here. Now, you know what comes right before this in the story? A strange Wedding of spiritual and human fleshly rebellion. Go read it, weird Nephilim story. Actually, don't read it, right before this. This theme is being developed of this pervasive darkness over the human condition and our desire to yield to it, take power on our own. And the question of the Bible is, what will Yahweh do about it? What's he going to do about this darkness that is settling in on the human condition? It's an, it's an odd answer to that question because he selects one family. Genesis chapter 12 it says, Through you, Abraham, and your descendants, I'm actually going to get back on track this plan to bless all the nations. We're going to push back the darkness through you, and we're going to restore blessing to the world. But have you read Genesis before? Go read Genesis and look at Abraham's family. They're a wreck. I and mean, they're a mess. It seems as if this very same power has infected the agent of blessing, Abraham's family. That family turns into a people that we call Israel, and God will rescue them supernaturally from slavery. And guess what we see? They don't fare any better. They're given their loyalty, they're given their allegiance away to idols that they carved out of gold and made into look like a cow and placed them. You are our God. The agent of restoration, Israel, has fallen victim to the very same darkness. They've desired power on their own terms. The fix has become broken. Do you see it? It's a story that the Bible is trying to tell us. I mean, it gets so bad that we looked last week at the end of Joshua as we finished our Joshua series that after all the miraculous, amazing things that Yahweh is doing for this people called Israel, at the very end of Joshua, he still has to say, would you please throw away the foreign gods already? Come on, serve Yahweh alone. As the stories of our Old Testament narrative continue, we're gonna see that, there's two parts of our problem. Here they are, two parts of our problem. Number one, the nations are enslaved to this dark power called sin. At a micro level, individually, and at a macro level, the l- rulers and the kings are clamoring for power. Macro and micro, individually. The nations are enslaved to this pervasive power darkness. By the way, the Bible is going to give a very clear-eyed assessment of the human condition. We're going to talk about it in a minute. And it must. It must. We can't see the solution. The nations, all the nations, including ours, look at human history, enslaved to the power of darkness, macro and micro. Second part of the problem, the fix is broken. The fix is supposed to be through Abraham's family. Through you, Abraham, will get this thing called blessing the nations back on track. Look at Ezekiel's assessment of Israel of his day. The sin of the people of Israel and Judah, it's exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. The nation that's supposed to be a light to the world is covered in darkness. They're supposed to bring justice into the world and they're flooding it with injustice. They don't, do, they, seem, they don't seem any better. Have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness? Each at the shrine of his own idol. And this is the story that Jesus will walk into. This is the story that your New Testament is written in. This is the story that they're simmering on so much so that when we get to Paul in the New Testament, he's reflecting on the human condition. It'll lead him to say statements like this. Hear it in Ephesians 2. This is a striking assessment of the human condition, and if you're not, you don't go to church. This is new to you. Then we're going to talk in a minute about why we have to start here. Okay, so hang with me. Look how Paul assesses this human condition as we find it here. Remember this wedded spiritual darkness of evil and sin, wedded with human desire for power. See it. it? Says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Incapable of bringing life to this world and blessing dead, we're like walking zombies. He will say. But what are we enslaved to? He's, he's simmering on all this narrative, this power of darkness. Look at verse two, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this age, is the Greek word of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul's just taking the Old Testament narrative and he's, just, he's rebooting it for us to see how Jesus fits in. It's the story that they're living in. And oftentimes we miss this. There's a dark, pervasive power. And like walking zombies, we yield to it. And oh, it gets worse. Look at the next verse. All of us also lived among them at one time. We're not victims. We're willing participants. Gratifying the desires of our flesh following its desires and its thoughts. God's holding out on you. Take. At a micro level, the Bible's gonna say that this is the reason for all of the the hurt and the brokenness and the wounds that people have caused you, the lying, the people who weren't faithful to what they said, the cheating, the divorce, the pain, the things that you do the things that you do in secret that you don't want people to know the hurt that you've caused to people the cheating the pain the wounds the not coming through on your word the sexual sin the yielding over to the, and the bending the knee to the power and the, of the idols of american money sex power nationalism party pride all of that yielding to it and worshiping it at a micro level at a macro level, the pain that we see in our world, the injustice, the racial tension. Look at the history of humanity slavery, genocide, wars. Just go look around the history of our people micro and macro. The dehumanizing nature of the pornography industry in our world right now. The Bible is not afraid to give an honest assessment of this world and its problems. Here's why we need that. We've been told, especially Americans, especially, I'm a millennial, technically, us millennial Americans especially, but all of us, we have been told a different narrative that we're basically good, that humans are essentially good inside, they're good people. There's a few bad, evil people out in the world. Most of them live in other countries not like us, and uh, America's the great savior, we're the great hero, and we have our technology now in the world, and we can fix things, and we're almost there. I mean, we're enlightened, and we've reached the pinnacle. And can I just challenge that just for a brief moment? That does not take seriously enough the wounds in your life. That does not take seriously enough the pain and the brokenness in this world. Not even close. It sounds good. We like to say it. We like to see it in movies. We like to tell ourselves that narrative, but it doesn't take seriously enough the genuine problems that we see in this world. It just doesn't. And the Bible is giving us a different narrative. It's saying there's a dark power and it's got its clutches on us and we yield. To it. And perhaps nothing has been more proof of that in the history of humanity than a Roman cross. The dehumanization of the Roman cross as a way to say, We win. You think you got power? We got power. See above example. We're going to humiliate you publicly. And it just so happens that this theme that's been developed all throughout our Bibles, perhaps nowhere, nowhere more clear than a Roman cross, it just so happens that our gospel writers pick up on this theme, and they place this little note right in the middle of the gospel accounts. On that hill, on that day, the gathered force of that darkness, like amassing an army, gathers around the innocent one to take its final and decisive strike. I think C.S. Lewis was tracking with this. When you remember the the scene in Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan goes up to the stone table and they're they're having a party around Aslan. He's tracking with this theme. The darkness Jesus allows to gather around himself to take its best Shot. No one walking by that hill that day would have thought this is it. This is the moment where death and sin are defeated. Not a chance. And as the darkness gathers around Jesus, we want to go there with our imaginations as best as we can, as followers of Jesus, as we sing these next we're gonna pause. We're taking time out. Before we go to good news, we're just gonna take a time out. And I'm gonna invite you, and I'm gonna invite myself to take a few moments here as we sing and as we pray and as we process to confess. To imagine that scene, to put ourselves there at the foot of the cross, to behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. And at a personal individual level, and maybe even at a corporate level, I would just like us in the quietness of your own heart just now, these next few minutes to just confess and go there to go back to the cross as we enter into Holy Week, to see him there, to see the weight of our taking and the power of darkness gathered around him. That's what we're gonna do. Take a few minutes just to do that. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I know this is heavy, I know this is strange. You can just look at us, that's fine. Followers of Jesus in the room, let's go there as we enter into Holy Week. Let me pray and we're gonna sing. Lord, just right now, We place ourselves just in our imaginations as best we can nearly 2,000 years ago at the foot of the cross to behold this gathered force of darkness and evil and sin. So much of it, we know we have cast our lot with it. If we were there, we might be the ones mocking and jeering at you. We put ourselves there. Take the gravity and the weight of this week. Remind ourselves of it. And now, just to confess our own brokenness, our own sin, personally, corporately. We do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing. Let's pray.
2: Take these hands. Lift them up. For I have not the strength to praise you near enough. See, I have nothing, I have nothing without you. Take my voice and pour it out. Let it sing the songs of mercy I have found. I have nothing i have nothing without you and all my soul
4: needs is all your
5: Out. The human heart, apart from your love, will drink itself to ruin on the wine of unholy communion of hate, of envy, of fear, of prejudice, of pride, of greed, of resentment, of self-pity, of envious entitlement and rage and every other ugliness that festers in the wounds of a broken race. This is our unlawful claim. Bounded by the embattled trenches of our rebellions, here is our own broken kingdom. Shoddily established, ever precarious, beset by endless war, propped up by a usurped power, preserved only by the spilling of blood, peopled by cracked women and splintered men. This is our illegitimate puppet kingdom. Freewheeling, death-dealing, downward spiraling, making it up as we go, fashioning the world in our own shattered image and unto our own twisted ends. These are all evidence and the inevitable working of the human kingdom upbuilding itself doing violence to reality while tearing its own very fabric apart. This is the abode of an insatiable absence. The haunt of abominations now briefly occupied by this clamoring, misbegotten, piecemeal nation formed of the enemies of all flourishing, united only in our allegiance to death, spread and sprawl, wittingly, and unwittingly affected in and through us all. This is the human kingdom, now unmasked as the inhuman kingdom. This is the unhuman kingdom, at last unmasked as the kingdom of death. And each of us has played our guilty part. For we, men and women, who in our sin first sought God-likeness ushered in, instead, futility and dread, long ago, destroying our own immortal thrones in the very act by which we sought to crown ourselves as sovereigns of ourselves. And every generation since has learned at what expense such liberation came. Death is the rock upon which every raging wave of human pride is dashed. call life is rife with sickness and death, a world where each of us must learn to make the best of these hollows bereft of ones we loved, a squalid shanty town of tattered souls whose ragged holes are visible, however desperately we try to hide our insufficiencies even from ourselves. And when the darkness parts just long enough that for an instant we perceive our monstrous need, the horror of the things we have become and done and left undone, held up against the light of God, reduces us, deluges us, enrages us, or breaks our hearts and drives us to despair for the settling weight of such a great conviction is more than we can bear to see ourselves defined in stark relief too wretched enslaved and powerless to affect our own release where then is our hope if we have hope at all who will rescue us now from this kingdom of death with which we have been so long aligned these Toxic roots and thorny vines In which we've grown So desperately entangled So deeply intertwined In deed and heart and lineage And mind Have we no hope? Where is our hope?
4: You make it beautiful you make it beautiful.
5: You make
4: it beautiful. You make it beautiful. I am a sinner. If it's not a one thing, it's.
3: walking by that cross on that day would have thought, this is it. The enthronement of the true king, the moment where sin is dealt with. Unless, unless. I want you to see in a sister letter that Paul writes to the Colossians. He writes in the same place at the same time as Ephesians. Watch how the New Testament writers, watch how we Immerse ourselves in the cross event as Jesus' followers and watch. Watch what happens there. He begins in a familiar place. By the way, this, I know this is heavy. And some of you right now are now like, can we just get the good news? Can we just get there, please? You were dead. And the sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's a way of saying you were alienated from the place of blessing. You were separated from the family of blessing and gone. You're out there, dead and far off. That's the problem. But look, look at what we, as followers of Jesus, look at what we believe took place on that cross. This is amazing theology packed in and condensed like Paul likes to do in just a handful of verses. He's got three main verbs that are supplied with, with verbs that sort of, that unpack those main verbs. I'll point them out to you real fast. Here are the three main verbs. The first is this. When you were dead in your sins and unsurried with your flesh, the first one is this. God, he's the active agent doing this action of the verb. God made you alive with the Messiah. He's gonna gonna backfill what that means with two verbs that function to backfill what that means. How did he make you alive? Two verbs, forgiving all of our sin. It's the Greek word karitsomai. It means he graced us. Where we were dead in sin, graced us, forgiving us all of our sin. And the second thing, having canceled that record that stood against us, that those things that you would never want to come up here and confess, maybe the things just a moment ago you were thinking that you'd never want to walk over and say, here's my record. Canceled. He made you alive. How? Forgiveness. And he canceled the debt that stood against us. And then look at what he says. He's taken it away. Second main verb. It's a perfect tense verb. What the perfect tense in Greek does is it brings it it brings about the state of the thing. We have a status of having our sin taken away. It's amazing. Our status now is that gone. But where? The next verb supplies it. Nailing it to the cross. Oh, it's a great cost. I have a status forgiven because that darkness nailed on him. Wow. And He keeps going. The next main verb is he made a public spectacle of them. And I want you to see this wedded darkness of the, e- of the power of evil and sin and human rebellion. Paul is simmering on that when he says powers and authorities. Paul is meaning, yes, the power of Rome, and yes, the power of those in charge, but he also means those powers that have ensnared the human condition. Those powers, that human desire for mastery and power and greed, wedded with that evil spiritual desire, that evil spiritual thing that we call sin, they were stripped their power, disarmed. The cross was meant as a public spectacle to shame the victim. Paul says Jesus was no victim. There he made a public spectacle of sin and death. Sin and death thought, this is it. We have the final word. And there on the cross, Jesus triumphed over them. Summarizing uh, the guy we quoted earlier, he says, Colossians 2 is, of course, deliberately ironic. What seemed to be happening as Jesus of Nazareth hung in agony on the cross was that the rulers and authorities were celebrating their triumph over him, having stripped him of his clothes and held him in public contempt. No, insists Paul. Once you learn the meaning of the gospel, you have to see everything inside out. He continues, when Jesus died, the powers lost their power. That power of evil and sin that's got humanity at an an individual micro level and a macro level in its clutches, stripped of its power. They can still rage and shout, but the power of Jesus is stronger. It is the power of forgiveness. Forgiveness. The past is blotted out. A new world has begun. A revolution has begun in which power itself is redefined as the power of love. The gospel was and is the powerful announcement that the world has a new Lord, and it comes with a summons, a call to pledge your allegiance, your believing allegiance to this new Lord. The power of sin and death has been broken. Jesus triumphs over them on the cross. Forgiveness and love are now the weapons of his people. They're the weapons of his kingdom. And this isn't some pie in the sky American notion that love wins in the end. That's not what he's talking about. This is a very costly sacrificial kind of thing. There's a reason we call it good news. This is what our world desperately needs the sort of sacrificial, others focused, forgiving kind of love. And it's made available here. This is where it gets its origin. This is our story, this is the tale that we tell. This is our narrative that frames everything that we do as Jesus followers in the room. And if you are here and you were not a follower of Jesus and you're like, man, I just showed up to this or somebody brought me, came with my neighbor, came with someone, I'm so glad that you're here. But if, you go, if you're going, I don't know this story this morning, that power, it's yours. You pledge your believing a loyalty to Jesus. If you've got questions about that, we would love to process that with you. Our prayer room's gonna be available. We would love to talk about you becoming a part of this revolution today. It's the story that our world desperately needs. Look around. And it's been accomplished where? On the cross. On the cross. The great irony is there on that cross, the powers and authorities think that they are winning. And Jesus, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself Taking the form of a servant, being found in the appearance of humans and made like them, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, he's highly exalted. It's the amazing story of our gospel that our world desperately needs. No one walking by that cross would think, Good news! Unless his body is being broken and his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of many. No one would think good news unless there the power of sin and evil takes its best shot and emerges defeated. So family of faith, we're going to take communion. We're going to remind ourselves the cost, the sacrifice that made available this kind of victory, a cross-shaped kind of victory victory. If you haven't gotten communion elements, we should have some in the back of the room if you missed that coming in. Uh, We're going to take communion now. You're going to take it on your own. We're not going to take it together because of COVID. Uh, So either with your family or you can take it individually by yourself. If you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, you can just watch us as we do this. This is something we do to remember the cross-shaped King and his sacrifice for us so family of faith, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his followers. And he says, this is my body broken for you. and You eat it in remembrance of me. And later on in this Passover meal, Passover celebrating the lamb that is, that is slaughtered so that s- salvation might come, he took a cup and he poured it He said, this cup is my blood. It's the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. And when you drink it, remember me. Forgiveness has won. Love has indeed won because of what Jesus has done on the cross. That is our hope. That's where we go as we enter into Holy Week. We remember now the ironic victory, the certain victory over sin and death. Jesus strips sin and death of power on the cross. Let's sing, let's pray, take communion as a family of faith.
0: We're going to give you a couple minutes right now just to take communion together with with by yourself or, or with your family and then we're going to sing one last song together and we'll stand together and sing that. So take the next minute and take communion. When you feel ready this morning, I'm gonna invite you to stand and sing this last song with us. When you feel ready.